All right, our scripture reading this morning is going to come from Exodus chapter 20, um, verses 1 through 17. That's going to be on page 72 of your Black Pew Bible. And if everyone could grab a, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab a um, Black Pew Bible from, from in front of you. Again, that's Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, and that's page 72 on your Pew Bible. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself no carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God and a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is in your neighbor's. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Josh read our teaching text already. We are studying a text today that our probably the, one of the most well-known in all of Scripture. We're starting the Ten Commandments and uh, God giving His people the law, the Mosaic Covenant. What's your attitude towards the law? Or what are your thoughts about the Old Testament law? We are biblical Christians. We want to think biblically. We want to think God's thoughts towards everything. What is your thoughts towards the law? Psalm 19. I've got a lot of texts we're going to put up on the screen just to help us um, um, not stay here too long. Psalm 19. David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, what is your attitude towards the law? Our thoughts need to be God's thoughts, right? The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the comb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. Now, what is your attitude towards the law of God? We, my family, we, we've 
uh, invested in a couple of beehives. And uh, recently, when Pastor Niku was here, his, his grandfather, Pastor Niku told me his grandfather had 100 beehives when he was growing up, and that's what part of how he made his living. And so we were excited because he helped us rob some rob one of our hives of honey. And so we, we robbed the hive, and as we're spinning the, the, um, the frames that has all the honey on it, slinging honey, and, and, and you end up getting honey everywhere. So it's, it's my honey, and so what do I do? I just lick it. I, whatever it gets on my finger, I just lick my fingers off because it's sweet, and this honey is good. And I don't know people talk about honey. Oh, it's clover honey. It's mint honey. It's this kind of honey. Da, da, da. I don't know. It's all good to me. I don't know enough about it, but I couldn't stop licking my fingers when I got the honey on it because it was so good. It was so sweet. But what is the scripture, Psalm 19? What does David say? God's word, his law... Keep in mind when he was writing this, all he had was the law, right? The Old Covenant, the Old Testament. The law is sweeter than honey. So David's attitude towards the law is it's wonderful. It's fabulous. Nothing better than his law. What is your attitude towards the law of God? Psalm 119, verse 97. Again, David, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And in verse 103, of the same psalm, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. There it is again. Is that your attitude towards the Old Testament law? Well, it should be. That's God's thoughts. And that should be our thoughts as well. Why is it not? Well, maybe we have some misunderstandings about the law. Small group leaders, you've already small group, some of you already addressed this issue and talked about some of the misunderstandings we have of the Old Covenant. Maybe some of, some of you small group leaders will do that tonight. But some misunderstand the law and saying it's, it's just restrictive, prohibitive. If it was a person, it would be the stick in the mud, the killjoy, the party pooper. It's like a straight jacket. It's freedom robbing sometimes we think. But Psalm 78 says, otherwise, the author is unknown, verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 78. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. In other words, he gave them the law, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And that's, we'd say, yeah, of course. Israel, they have the law. They're supposed to teach it to the next generation, and that generation teach it to the next generation. That generation to the, teach it to the next generation. We, we get that. Of course, that's what should happen. Look at verse 7. What's the purpose of that teaching, teaching the next generation the law of God? So that, that's a purpose clause, they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. What is the purpose of teaching the next generation the law of God? It's so that they set their hope in God. The law of God is not to stifle joy, but to give hope. The law helps the Israelites place their confidence in the Lord. And we see that reiterated in the New Testament. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul writing to the Roman believers, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have what? Hope. There it is again. 
So as the Israelites, the Hebrews, they read the law, they're to know that this God who inspired such writing truly is just and righteous and is dealing with his people. And through the law, they're able to get to know God better and better because through the law, we see the character of God on display and we see the will of God being declared. So there's some misunderstanding, isn't it, concerning the law. Another misunderstanding of the law is that it's how we attain righteousness. We keep the law, we earn right standing with God, like rungs on a ladder. What's wrong with that? It's just wrong, right? Yeah, it's just wrong. For those who think such things, they think too highly of themselves, don't they? <laughs> who can attain perfection by obeying the law? Nobody. In fact, one of the purposes of the law is not to be a means to attain salvation through works, but to show us that we can never attain salvation through works. See Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says the word of God is what? It's a tutor. Educating us that we can't keep the law and pointing us to Jesus, who did keep the law. Let's remember the context where we are. We're in Exodus 20. We're just working our way through this book. Moses had led the people of God toward the promised land. They've been rescued, redeemed. They've been saved by God's mighty hand through the plagues. They've been brought through the Red Sea. Miraculously, they've been provided for in the wilderness. Water, manna, quail, water again. Amalekites come to fight them. God whips tail and takes names, right? So God is bringing the people toward the promised land, but they've come to a place called the mountain of God. It's called Horeb. It's called Sinai. It's where Moses first received his call to go to Pharaoh to tell the people to let their people go. He's back there again. They're going to be there for 11 months receiving the law of God. This people have been chosen by God. God has poured out grace and mercy upon the Hebrew people and they're called his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This relationship, we see this relationship with God and, and Israel, it's grace. It's all about grace. This relationship has already been established. He's called them, he's rescued them, he's saved them. He's given promises through Abraham. Israel's been saved. And what they've been saved to do, this is our first point in our text today, Israel was saved to worship. Israel, they were redeemed, they were rescued, they were saved so they can worship, worship the one true God. They're to worship the one true God only. We've seen this covenant God made with Abraham. It's a unilateral covenant. God promised all these promises to Abraham and to his descendants. But now what God is doing is teaching the Israelites, what a redeemed life is supposed to look like. What are the expectations God has for his people? His treasure possession. And so God gives them the law. So the law is connected to grace. It is a grace of God. It is grace that God, the omnipotent God, spoke to this nation his will. It is grace that they heard him and lived. If you continue on the text, a few verses after uh, Josh finished, You'll see the people, they hear God speaking. Because at this point in time, God is not speaking. What's happened? God speaks to Moses. And what does Moses, the prophet of God, do? Delivers that message to the people of God. 
He's the mouthpiece of God. But what do we see here at the mountain? Something different here. Something different. We hadn't seen this before. What do we see? We see smoke, we see fire, we see the mountain shaking, and we hear God speaking directly to the people. Such an awesome, incredible thing, they couldn't handle it. Please, Moses, how about we go back to the way we were doing things, where God speaks to you and then you tell us. We don't want to hear from God. We're scared we're going to die. It was so awesome. Look at verse 2 of chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then what does God do? He begins to give them the Ten Commandments. But here in verse 2, we see the motivation to obey the law, this prologue, if you will. Why are the Hebrews to obey the commands? Because of what God has done. What has God done? He's chosen this rebellious people to be his own. And he's saved them. He's redeemed them. He's rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh. So these expectations are going to be given in started in verse 3. Again, the, the expectations are given through the law, not so that people can obey and earn the right to be his people, but so they can obey and become more and more the people they already were. Treasure possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. They're already God's people. They have to grow into that position, grow into who they already are. How do they do that? God gives the law and tells them his expectations. Redemption, this rescue that took place, is not the reward of obedience. Rescue is the, the reason for obedience. And, and we have to understand where we are in redemptive history. We have the law. Of course, now we're living under the new covenant. But then, right, where we are in redemptive history, God, he's little by little progressively revealing himself to his people. And so today as we read this, we have to, as we talk about application and, and how this applies, we're going to be looking at a lot of different verses, a lot of different things about law, like the types of law. But we have to ask the question, well, what about us in the New Covenant? Do we have to submit to the, the law in its entirety? I mean, do we have to circumcise our baby boys on the eighth day? Do we, offer, do we have to offer sacrifice on the Day of Atonement? Do we have to marry our brother's widow if our brother dies childless? Anybody got a brother? Hope they have children, right? So what's the answer to all those questions? No. The question is the answer is no to those questions. But nine of these ten commandments we're about to study over the next few months are directly reaffirmed or restated in the new covenant. So it's important that we turn we determine what we you know how we're to apply these what we're to apply, and how. And we'll be, little by little, we'll be teaching you how to do that over the next weeks. Yes, this is the Old Testament. Yes, the Old Covenant. This is God's Word spoken to the nation of Israel. Yes, we're the church. We're not Israel. We live under the New Covenant. But I do want to point out, as we, we, we say, oh, this is Old Covenant stuff, this portion of law is to, is to be obeyed, these Ten Commandments, because it's expression of love for God. 
It's not just an Old Testament concept. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we're going to see this first commandment today and how it's restated in the new covenant. So now we come to the, the Decalogue, if you will. The Decalogue taken from two different words. Deca means ten and, and logos means word. The ten words. And in three times it's mentioned, it's called the ten words. It's never called the ten commandments. That's something we, we call it. And that's fine. That's what it is. And we really can't overstate the importance of these ten commands. These ten commandments were delivered Again, not to, to Moses to be communicated to people. It was delivered by God to the people amidst smoke and fire and the mountain quaking. And, and it's such an important event. And these ten words are so important that they were placed in the Ark of the Covenant along with Aaron's staff and the manna. We see that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. So these ten commands, they lay the groundwork for the rest of the law. In fact, some have said these, these ten are the absolute standard for morality for the, for the nation of Israel, and the rest of the law is just application. But verse 2 reminds us, reminds the, the people of Israel what God has done for them. They are God's people. And what should they do? Verse 3, they should have no other gods before Him. If you had a list of things, we sinful, finite folk, we got a list of things. What are we going to do? We're going to put the most important thing first. This is numero uno. Number one, what does God say? He says, don't have another God before my face. Don't have another God in my presence. There should be no other gods to be worshipped but me and me alone. It may seem strange to us as we read this. Why didn't you know? Why did God mention gods? Because gods aren't really real. Well, let's think about where they came from. They came from Egypt, and Egypt they weren't monotheists, where they they believed there was only one God. No, they were polytheists. They worshipped many gods: the sun, the Nile, Pharaoh, on and on and on. And where are they going? They're on the road right, to the promised land. They're stopping at, at Mount Sinai, but then they're going to the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, who lived in the, in the promised land at this point in time? The Canaanites, now they're polytheists as well. Many, many gods. So if you kind of understand where we are in redemptive history, he's not saying, you have other gods, just put me at the top of the list. That's not what he's saying here. In time, God will, through his prophet, make statements like he did in Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 18. Thus saith the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no what? There's no other. There are no other gods, right? I'm the one true living God. And we see that in the New Testament, don't we? With Paul, he's talking about food, sacrificed idols. Should I eat the food that was sacrificed to idols? Uh, is that going to cause a, a problem? Is that something that I should do? Is that something I should not do? And what's Paul say? We know that an idol is nothing and that there is no God but one. But the command here is to worship God only. Now think about that. When we think about worship, now we are created beings made in the image of God 
And because we're made in the image of God, we're created beings, we are worshipers. That's what we do. Albert Moeller writes, we, were, we will worship either one true and living God or we will worship an idol of our own devising or our own adoption. We will worship the idol of the tribe or the cave or the marketplace, the theater or the idol of self. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we're going to give worth, which means to worship is to give worth to something. We're going to give worth to something. If it's not God, it's going to be something else. That's what we do as human beings. We give worth to things. We worship stuff and people. What is it that we give worth to? And, and I'm going to add the superlative prepositional phrase, above all things, to this. What is it that we give worth to above all things? Cohen, what is it that satisfies us above all things? What is it that we delight in above all things? John, what is it that we adore above all things? What is it that we esteem above all things? What is it that we value above all things? What is it that we depend on above all things? Those are the things that we worship. It should be the one true living God. It may not be. Whatever we answer those, whatever the answer is to those questions, that's what we worship. We're worshiping creatures. Louis Gale, he, he taught a series. It's called Worship, The Thing We Do. It was really instrumental in my life 20 years ago. Um, I heard him teach this, and it impacted me. He says, Worship is the core activity of the human soul. Created with a massive capacity to exalt the Creator, we have hearts that are genetically bent on worship. Worship is our response to what we value most. That's why worship is that thing we all do. It's what we're all about on any given day. Yeah, we're worshipers. And God commands, commandment number one is that we worship God alone. You shall have no other gods. You shall have no other. It's the same language used elsewhere to describe an exclusive relationship in marriage between a man and a woman. You shall have no other wife. You shall have no other husband. The two will become one flesh, forsaking all others. You'll only have him You'll only have her. You're, in this marriage relationship, you're to have exclusive covenant loyalty. So it is with the nation of Israel and God. Can you imagine bringing another in to your spouse and saying, this is my lover. I love you very much, but I have affection for him or her. And from this point on, we're going to be split in time. That's exactly what happens when we violate the first commandment. God says, I'm your creator. I've saved you. I've given you life and breath and everything good. Worship me. Let's think about what it means to have a false God, to worship something else. And, and, and for, for many of us, we can't imagine statues, idols. We, my family, we can. We saw them often. But for us in this American church context, 
it's hard for us to realize that people actually worship this, this thing by a person. But people all over the world are doing that even now. We'll talk about idols next week, commandment number two. But a false god is, is anything that we set in the place in our hearts that only the one true God should occupy. Origen, he wrote, What each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. Israel was redeemed for what purpose? Israel was redeemed for what purpose? Why were they rescued? To worship. Yeah, to worship. And to worship God alone. And second thing we see in our text is what worshiping another God might look like. Some people say that they have God as their God, but maybe maybe they love earthly things and the pleasures of this world more than Him. Thus they reveal that they have another God before the true one. Philippians chapter 3. We're just going to look at several examples uh, in the in the scriptures that might help us understand what it looks like to have a another God before Yahweh. Philippians chapter three, verse seventeen through nineteen. Let's read that together, brothers. Paul writes, "Join me and Im- join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us." And I'm thankful that we in our church we have people we can say, "Hey." These people are examples. They're brothers and sisters of Christ who love the Lord, who put God first, who worship God alone. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And what do they do? Their end is their is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindsets, with minds set on earthly things. So what do they do? Their God is their belly. What does that mean? That doesn't mean they're, they eat too much, per se. It could be, right? But what, what it's saying is they're temporal pleasures, temporal, worldly temporal things, earthly things. They've enthroned earthly temporal pleasures in a place that only the one true God should occupy. They love pleasure more than God. And we see that again in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul warned Timothy that in the last days, perilous times will come. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. This is chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of what? Pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. It could be that we're, pleasure is our God. We desire pleasure. We lean on pleasure. We pursue pleasure above all things. Can you say that? Is pleasure your God? I have to say, there's times where pleasure is my God, comforts my God. Other people say they have God for their God, and they may even look deeply involved, maybe in their church, but in reality, they love maybe power or influence or their position more than they love the Lord. Third John nine through eleven. 
This idea of power becoming your God, position, authority becoming your God. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our, acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want, want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seen from God. So you see this man, this so-called brother, he, he loved his position of power. That was his God. And so he violated the first commandment. Still others say they love the Lord, but in reality, maybe they love their family or they have relationships that they put more emphasis on than the Lord. If they ever had to make a choice between following Jesus or submitting to the objections or desires of their family, they would reveal that they have placed their family as God before the one true God. It kind of hits home a little bit. Well, we're supposed to love family. Well, of course, sure. But our relationships, what we depend on, what we place first, should never be family. Relationships should always be the Lord. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 38 do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is Jesus' words. For I have come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We pray at our church often that we, the Lord would raise up children. I, I pray often that my children, God would raise them up and they would go to places where people need to hear the gospel. I want my kids to serve the Lord. And I want people from within our church to the Lord to raise up and to he sees fit to send them to hard places. would love to send them and support them and help them. But you know, I have people when we pray those things, we talk about those things, they say, you know, I, I don't want you to say that. Don't pray that. Don't ask the Lord to do that. I couldn't bear the thought of letting my children or my grandbabies go overseas where I couldn't see them. Wow. Sounds like you've got a Worship problem. Sounds like you've got a, a worship problem. We would not dare bow down to an, an, an idol, a, a carved image, a grotesque looking animal of sorts. Of course not. But how many of us trust in people, in pleasures in success in our own means our accomplishments and other relationships do we serve something or someone more faithfully than him do we trust something or someone more faithfully than God do we love something or someone more than him it may be that he's now commanding us to give him back the place in our hearts that only he should occupy. 
Paul, he once spoke of how thankful he was for his dear brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. He told them of how everyone was for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. May the Lord help us today be like them, turning from pretender gods to serve Him and Him alone. I really struggled just trying to figure out how do we how do we know? How can we see? And I see these examples in, in, in the text of other people who had idols, who had other gods before God's face. And I think about our own lives. How do we examine ourselves and how do we know? Sometimes it's difficult, isn't it? And we talk about family. Sometimes when I talk about family, that hits a, a sore spot for folks. But we have to make sure that we're depending Valuing God above all things. How do we apply this first commandment? Several, I've got a bunch listed here. We're not going to get to all of these things today. Again, your small groups, you'll have wonderful conversation. We're no longer under the old covenant, but that doesn't mean that we're no longer taught by the law. Jesus obeyed this command and we should too. We see the New Testament equivalent, this first command, have no other gods before me. We see it in Matthew chapter 22. We see it restated. And Jesus here is just quoting Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. He says in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, Sarah, I know you're doing awesome, girl. I'm wearing you out today. Uh, someone's come to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? And just what Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Think about that. Do you love God with everything you have? If you love God with everything you have, guess what? You're going to be putting Him, worshiping Him alone, right? And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Again, in Acts chapter 14, verse 15, Paul, he's on his first missionary journey. He had healed a cripple. He's in Lystra. And, and when he healed the cripple, Maddie, they, they flipped out. And they started calling him Paul a god and Barnabas a god, Hermes and Zeus. They gave them God names. And this is what Paul says. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, these idols, these worshiping things that aren't God, to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You know, so we see this restated. We see it again in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. We see it restated in the New, new Covenant. Don't, don't throw it away. I saw covenant law. No. That's the Ten Commandments, and we see it restated. Jesus obeyed it, and he taught it. When we fail to obey this command as Jesus did, we must do what? Repent. So application number one, if we're not having him in, he, he's not in his rightful place right now, we need to repent. And it's hard to know sometimes. The second application point is, do you have the right attitude towards the law? Some of you, you say you're a New Covenant Christian, but you don't ever read the Old Testament. Now, I don't really like the Old Testament. I ain't really understanding. Again, what's David say? 
better than honey. Better than honey. It's sweeter. I love the law of God. It's not a straitjacket. The law gives me hope in God. Because when I read the law, I see His character. I see His goodness. I see His will revealed to me. Our attitude should be the same as God's about all things. When our attitude is not God's and our actions are not God's, it's sin. Our attitude is not God's. We need to repent. God, give me a love for your law. Some of you, in, in application form, might be, you need to read the Old Testament. Some of you may not ever read the New Testament. I mean, Old Testament. We're in Exodus right here. And some, some of you come up to me and say, man, I'll be glad when you get to like a New Testament book. And I get it. The epistles, it's just easier, right? We just read three or four verses. Here you got to read a whole chapter and it's long and da da da. Yeah, just maybe, maybe do we have the right attitude towards the law? I mean, can you imagine if 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 everybody lived according to the Ten Commandments? You wouldn't have to lock your doors, wouldn't have to have security cameras, no prisons. <laughs> think about that. You wouldn't have to whoop your kids so much, you know. Application number three is guard your worship. 1 John 5, 21. John, he says, little children. He always says that about his flock, his people, little children. I'm not going to do that. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Guard your worship. Guard your worship. What you worshiping? What's most important to you? What do you depend on? What do you lean on? What do you trust in? What do you value most? What do you esteem most? Guard your worship. Fourthly, remember we're saved to worship. I mean, we, we Jamie and Rhonda, we read their testimonies. They've been saved, repented, trusted Christ, been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Why? So they worship God. We're saved to worship. How many times did, from chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, God... Through Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Why? In order that they may serve me and worship me. Why were they saved? To worship. Why are you saved? Chase, why are you saved, man? You saved to worship the one true living God. Actually, you're saved to worship. Yeah, let's worship. Fifthly, several more here. Fifthly, one of the purposes of the law is to show us our sin. It's like a mirror. Galatians chapter 4, Paul says it's like a tutor. It shows us our sin and points us to Jesus. And that's what the law does. We see that we can't measure up. We can't obey it. We can't do it. Jesus fulfilled the law completely? We can't. The law shows us our sin and points us to Christ. If you're saying, I can't keep God first, I can't put Him first, I've never had. Well, you're a lawbreaker and you need forgiveness. Christ, He kept this command. The first commandment, Christ kept perfectly. You need that record. 
You need Christ's record in regard to the first commandment. How do you get that? Maybe you're here and you've never repented. This is how you get that record. Because without the record, Jesus' record, you can't approach the Father. You can't have a relationship with God, which means you're separated from God. And, and when you die, you breathe your last, which may be in a few minutes, you'll be in eternity where you're separated from God for all eternity in hell. So what God commands you to do is to repent. His, his whole Jesus summarized three words, repent and believe. All his sermons summarize three words, repent and believe. So you need to repent and you need to trust Christ's work on the cross that he died for you and that he rose on the third day so you could be made right with God. I want to encourage you, if you've never repented, to repent and trust Christ. Christ kept this commandment perfectly. The only one that's ever done it. And we need his record. And for all of us who've repented and believed, guess what? We've got his record. But maybe you're here and you've never repented and trusted Christ. You need his record. Because God's standard for your life, his will for your life, is that you worship him always, forever, always, every day, all day long. If you haven't done that, you need Christ's record. And you get that by repenting and trusting Christ. And lastly, on this side of the, the, the cross, this side of the crucifixion and resurrection, this first commandment demands that we worship Jesus. Remember Jesus went to the, on a Mount of Transfiguration. Who did he take with him? Do you remember? Who did he take with him? Who did he take with him? Oh, man. Fire me, please. Fire me. I'm a terrible pastor. Who did he take? Peter, James, and John. His three, his three closest disciples, right? Peter, James, and John. We're not getting a raise this year, brother. We're terrible. Matter of fact, we've got to give some money back. Peter, James, and John, the three closest of his disciples, they go up on the mountain and they're transfigured. Jesus is transfigured. Who's there with them? Thank you. Thank you. That's mercy and grace. I appreciate you, brother. Yeah. Moses, Elijah. And what did the father say about the son? Do you remember? Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. It's very important in, in the story of redemptive history, this transfiguration. Listen to Jesus. Why? John 14, 7 tells us. Jesus, again, teaching disciples, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You've seen Jesus. You've seen the Father. Hey, this side of the cross, what do we do? We worship Jesus, the Son, who kept the law perfectly for us, who died on a cross, not because he... He did anything wrong because we did something wrong. Because we couldn't keep the first commandment. And he, he was buried on the third day. He rose from the dead so we could be justified. Even though we hadn't kept the first commandment, he rose so that we could be, it could be as if we had. And we have in Christ if you trusted him. Have you trusted Jesus? Are you worshiping Jesus? Let's worship Jesus. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. Thank you for tuning in to our Sunday morning services at Beaver Baptist Church. We are currently studying the book of Exodus. If you have any questions about today's message, or would like more information about our church, call us at 901-837-2904. You can also visit our website at beaverbaptist.com.